is an embarrassment. And so uh, the, the men are embarrassed and they, they don't know really what to do. And, um, and so David comes to them, meets them halfway before they even get back to their towns and have to show their face in front of their families. I mean, because if you think about it, you're going in as an ambassador, you're going in as a, as a you know, emissary of a very powerful kingdom, what you see to be the kingdom of God, and you're more or less emasculated by this, uh, you might think of them as like a peasant group of people. And so how would you feel if they had emasculated you um, and you're, you're coming back and having to show your face in front of your family? Well, it, it's kind of the same thing. And, and David grants them a real mercy by kind of putting them in, in Jericho and says, you know, you don't have to show your face uh, to your people until all of this, you know, your beard grows back and, and we won't tell anybody about, about this. And so he, he kind of gives to them a mercy and, um, and, but, but you know, the, have you ever ha- been in those, those times where you've made a decision and you immediately regret the decision that you've made? Well, Hanun is about to be put in that position where he realizes almost immediately we have made a grievous error here in, in this. And the text uh, gives us a little bit of allusion to that, but we'll see a little bit more, I think, uh, where he has, he has made a really, a really bad error. But before we do that, think back to who Hanun's dad is. His dad's name is Nahash, which literally means serpent. But Nahash, remember, is the king that way back in Saul's reign um, what came after, after Saul. And, and uh, uh, Saul had, was the first battle that Saul actually fought was against the Ammonites, and he drove him out. These are the people that wanted to cut off the right hand and gouge out the right eye of uh, the Jewish men. So they wanted to embarrass them. And so Saul and uh, Nahash have had a, a tumultuous beginning. But because of that, um, uh, Nahash has recently died. And so what that probably means, that gives us some indicator that um, this most likely took place before David became powerful. So this is probably pretty early in David's reign. I would assume that this is going on. We don't have a ton of references. We actually don't have really any references to the Ammonite kings this early in any other form except for the Bible. So we don't really get any years on any of these kings. We can't really determine from archaeology where they reigned, when they reigned, that kind of a thing. And so we're just left with the Bible's chronology. So it's probably pretty early in David's reign when this actually takes place. Either that or Nahash reigned for like 60 to 80 years, which is not unheard of and not impossible, but it would mean that he had a a pretty long tenure uh, um, on on the throne otherwise. So uh, he, but he was the Ammonite king in the earliest years of Saul in Jabesh Gilead, when he tried to take over Jabesh Gilead and, and Saul had to go in and intervene and drive him out. And so for that reason, Nahash didn't really like Israel. You can tell that pretty early on. And when David takes the throne, Nahash, it's evident from the text, treated him pretty well. Um, You know, David even says as much that I'll deal loyally with Hanun in verse two, 
uh, as the son of Nahash, as his father dealt with me. So it's pretty obvious that Nahash was pretty excited to see David take the throne because he probably didn't like Saul very much. But once uh, Hanun di- or once Nahash dies, David decides to buddy up with with Hanun. So when when Hanun uh, does this to David's emissaries, uh, this really means war. And for that reason, you can tell that uh, Hanun is regretting the decision that he's made. How do we know? Well, because he doesn't have a military to actually fight against David. That's one reason you know he's in a, a uh-oh kind of position. And so realizing that David was more of a threat than he originally supposed, uh, the Ammonites under Hanun, what do they have to do? They have to hire mercenaries, meaning they don't have a military that can match Israel's military. And so if you look at the map on the right, over on the right of your screen, you have uh, Ammon, which is down here just east of the Jordan River. You have the city of Rabah, which is, hopefully you can see that, is down towards the bottom of the screen there. And it's where the orange line, the initial orange line, is going from Jerusalem to Rabah. Rabah is the capital of uh, Ammon. And so uh, that's where the center of the battle is taking place. And all these red lines up here at the top coming from Zobah and Rehob and Damascus and Machah and all of these places coming all the way down south. That's where uh, Hanun is having to go to get his military. He's having to go pay to get his military from these places and bring them down south. Now, these mercenaries are probably not hesitant to fight at all because it seems that they don't really that they don't really like Israel either. Think about this for just a moment. Everybody wants possession of the land that David has. That is prime real estate. Remember when the Jews are walking through the, the desert and they're marching in. That's part of the reason that we can say pretty confidently, I think, it's a, it's a great apologetic to say, well, how do the Jews actually have possession of this real estate? Because this is like boardwalk and park place put together. Um, and they were able to just walk in and take possession of it from about 14 100 all the way up to you know 1100 and establish a kingdom there well the arameans up here in aram and uh which it was really kind of you can think of the arameans and the syrians as the same group of people but the arameans the syrians up here up at the north they really want control of that property uh because if you have control of that property man what can you not do there you can, you can control taxes. It's good farmland. You can control the travel between Egypt and the Mesopotamian region. There's so much that you have access to right there in that real estate that David has. So the Arameans up here, the Syrians up here at the north, have every reason to fight against David. So it, it's, it was probably not very hard to hire mercenaries that were willing to fight against David. All right. But he hires these mercenaries up here from up, up in the north to come and fight against David. And um, and he, he, he kind of constructs this in a pretty smart way. 
you see um, in starting in verse six to 14 is um, is kind of the description of the battle. And it gives the number of people that he had taken from each uh, from each you know country or each region. And David sends uh, Joab and Abishai, his brother, out to kind of lead the battle against, uh, uh, you know, against uh, um, uh, the Ammonites. And the Ammonites kind of arrange this battle in a pretty intelligent way. Rabbah is the center of the controversy. So on your map, you're looking there, Rabbah is the center of the controversy. And basically what he does is he takes the Ammonites and he puts them guarding the city. The city is his most prime real estate. It's his most treasured possession. It's got all of his houses and, and riches and treasures and all of those kinds of things in it. And so he takes the Ammonites and he puts them in Rabbah. And then he takes all of the mercenaries who are, it seems like, pretty skilled fighters. And they're being paid, after all, to fight. He takes them and puts them in the surrounding areas around Rabbah which basically means that if uh, Joab and, and uh, Abishai are to walk into Rabbah, they're going to be surrounded in the front by the Ammonites and on the sides and the back by the mercenaries from the Syrians, basically, the Syrian mercenaries. And so Joab regroups and he basically says to Abishai, his brother, you take these guys and you lead them straight into the Ammonites and I'll take the SEAL team six basically. And I'll, I'll put them against the mercenaries that are on the outside. And so they divide and conquer is essentially the idea. And so he, they split up and sure enough, and, and Joab is a pretty good guy. It seems like, I mean, he hasn't always made the best decisions granted, but, uh, but he seems to be a pretty with it general. And, not only does he understand military, but he also has a pretty good theological approach to the battle too. We'll let God decide how he's going to deal with this, but we're going to trust that he's going to make, you know, he's going to make the best of this or whatever. And so he divides them up and he goes after these, these people. And sure enough, Joab with SEAL team six essentially drives out uh, the mercenaries and they flee back up to the North and we're going to catch them in just a minute, but they flee back up to the North to Halam and once the Ammonites see that their mercenaries, their, you know, elite fighters have left, what's left for them? So they retreat to their city, shut themselves in, presumably, probably shut the gates as well. And Joab joins Abishai and they, they move in and begin to assault uh, the Ammonites. And so the Ammonites, uh, you know, uh, more or less are, are whooped. That's not the end of the Ammonites, as we're going to see in chapter 11. That's not the end of them, but it is the initial end of them. And so they have been uh, kind of put in their place. And David's you know, generals basically get both of the groups to retreat. And so uh, the, the mercenaries of Syria have, or Syria slash Aramea, same, same place, they, they leave. They, they retreat up to Halam. And, uh, and then, uh, they move into the Ammonite capital of Rabbah and essentially engage in battle there and have forced the Ammonites also to retreat. Um, now once the Arameans, the Syrians, Arameans, same group of people again, once they, uh, retreat, they realize, well, 
I guess we'll fight for free. Um, we, we really want to engage against, uh, for whatever reason, uh, want to engage against Israel. We think we can beat them. And so they regroup uh, at Halam. Let's take a look at our, our passage. It's uh, 1 Samuel 10, 15 to 19. It says, but when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and Hadadezer sent and brought uh, out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halam with Shobach, Shobach uh, the commander of the army of Hadadezer at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed uh, killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of, the, of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that, uh, that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. <laughs> so... Um, this is another reason why the Ammonites, or the, sorry, the uh, the Syrians feel as though they have they stand a pretty good chance. They were up against his elite forces, yes, but we didn't employ all of our forces. And so Hadadezer goes back across the Euphrates and gathers some more of his men who had probably been engaged against the Assyrians and brought them into the land, into the area of Halam. Uh, and once David hears about it, he says, look, if they want to fight, if a fight's what they want, a fight is what they're going to get. And so he sends in the rest of his men into Halam and essentially makes short work of the Arameans. And from that moment on, they're no longer coming to the, the rescue of the Ammonites. Again, that's not the end of the Ammonites, but it is the beginning of the end of the, the Ammonites. And so, uh, sorry, I, I think I missed a blank there. Um, Hadadezer joined Israel in the battle at Halam in the desert east of the Sea of Galilee, but again, he was defeated. Um, now, the important part about this, this uh, text here that, that you, you have to pay attention to, and, and I think this is true anytime you, you, and we're studying the Old Testament, particularly when God speaks and makes a promise, take note of the promise that he makes. And uh, in specific detail, because inevitably what you find is that that the author is going to show you when and where those things come to fulfillment. So, and, and the other part of that is, you know, Dave, David knows that he's going to he's going to be building the temple of of God, or that his son is going to be building the temple of of God, and so he he trusts in that promise, and so he starts taking. Um, tribute and starts setting it aside for uh for his son to build and so you can see in first chronicles 18 7 to 8 david took she took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of hadadezer and brought them to jerusalem and from tibhoth and uh and from kun cities of hadadezer david took a large amount of bronze with it Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. These are to go in the, in the temple later. And so uh, David is trusting in the promise that Yahweh has, has given to him. And we see that it's already coming to, to be. David places 
the Damascus under tribute. Um, Damascus is in Aram. If you remember the map, Aram is in toward the northeast, and uh, Damascus is not the popular city that it is, that it will become later on. But it, it, it's really a, a it's a at least important enough city. He puts that whole uh, region under tribute, and so they're giving him. Um, gold and things like that. And he ends up using that as articles for the temple much later. Um, but then we also see some other things that are coming about. Look at first Chronicles 18 of well, the verses that follow right after that 18, nine to 13. He says, when two King of Hamath heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, King of Zobah, he sent his son Hadaram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with two. And he sent uh, all sorts of articles of gold, of silver and of bronze. These also King David dedicated um, to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he carried off from all the nations, from Edom, uh, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines and Amalek. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, uh, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, and the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So we, we saw some of this last week. This is, again, chapter 10 is an extension of what has happened already for David, that God is beginning to, to, um, to uh, fulfill his promise. And so, uh, two, the king of Hamath becomes David's suzerain, um, or D David's the suzerain, to, uh, he's the vassal. And um, so that that terminology, David's the, the suzerain, means that he's kind of the, the Lord and the vassal being the, the uh, two, king of Hamath, is basically put in subjection to him. So all of these territories, that's the important thing in, as David begins to conquer these, is he not only conquers these areas, he also conquers the areas they've conquered. So the kingdom of God, as it were, is spreading exponentially. And the people that are coming under David's reign are exponentially contributing to the temple that's going to be built by Solomon. So by the time Israel is ready to build or Solomon is ready to build the temple, uh, the Wealth is a plenty in Israel. And also keep this in mind. Solomon builds the temple really early on in his reign. So Solomon takes the throne, as you see in your timeline up there, in like 971-ish. By, I think it's 966, if I remember right, he's building the temple. So 967, 966, he's building the temple already. So the wealth is already established by his father, David, uh, by the time Solomon takes the throne. And, and so, uh, you know, what, what God has already begun to fulfill of what he has, what he has promised in chapter seven, you know, is abundant. Now we've said, I've said from the very beginning that there are a lot of parallels between the kingdom of God as established in the garden of Eden with Adam at the helm. And the kingdom of God is established with David at the helm. And what we're going to see is those parallels develop even more so in chapter 11.
where David makes uh, really, I would say, the most grievous error of his entire reign. And ultimately, through a series of events, will eventually lead to his own demise. And uh, and and but it but it's, it's strictly because of sin. And this is going to sound well. I, I think it sounds very similar to Adam's fall. What did Adam have to complain about? Um, he had everything that he needed. He he God had given him everything that he could possibly ever want, and yet. What did they do in Genesis chapter three? It says specifically in chapter three that Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a delight to the eyes, was good for food, desirable to make one wise. And so she took it and she ate it and gave it to her husband who was with her and he took it and ate it. And so there's this idea that very early on God's, kingdom is not enough and God's law is not enough and God's rules are not enough and God's benevolence is not enough for humanity. And we want to break those boundaries and go outside of that. Well, um, what does David do? Well, we, we're going to see some very uh, unfortunate things uh, coming up. Let's take a look at Second um, uh, Samuel chapter 11 verses one to five, and we immediately get a really bad feeling about this, okay? So let's look at verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Well, we know that's bad already. Um, in this, this is the spring, so they don't have to deal with the winter, harsh, you know, winter, uh, you know, weather or anything like that. And so spring is traditionally when kings go out to make war. And so what do we see here happening in verse one already? But that kings, this is the season when kings go out to war, except for the fact David chose this season to stay at home. Now, uh, I think by the author of second Samuel putting it this way, he intends for us to see this as a really bad thing. Um, whether David was on the battlefield every time Joab went out to battle, I don't know. Um, the day, the text doesn't really tell us that he was, doesn't really tell us that he wasn't, but, um, but so we don't know, but what we do know is that it seems like he's trying to draw our attention to this in verse one, David stayed at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw the roof of a woman, uh, saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Um, so uh, virtually all of Aram is now under um, Israel's dominance. They're paying tribute to Israel, 
But we see that the Ammonite problem, the Ammonites are still a pest out in the east. And so David is engaging in Second uh, Samuel 11 uh, in continued battle and skirmishes with the Ammonites. They're going and, and, and doing battle with them at, uh, at Rabbah. Now, the first chapter 10, uh, sorry, chapter 9 and chapter 10 both begin with a drastically different David than what we find in chapter 11. In chapter 9 and chapter 10, David is, it seems, eager to show kindness. Remember chapter 9, um, he's wanting to show kindness to uh, anyone in Saul's house, particularly of the line of Jonathan and, um, and because of the covenant that he has made with Jonathan. In chapter 10, he wants to show kindness to Hanun, who is the son of, um, uh, of his father, who was uh, Nahash, who, who was kind to, to David. And so David wants to show kindness to him. But already we get a different tone in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's as if, again, David is bored with what God has given to him. And he has no kindness to show. In fact, when we get uh, in two weeks, when we get to the prophet Nathan coming to, to David, he puts what David does in this act of adultery in a, the light uh, that it, it probably deserves of stealing a person's, you know, poor person's only sheep um, and you know, taking it from him. And so here in the first two chapters, David is showing kindness and benevolence of the kingdom of God to, to, to people. And, and then in chapter 11, we find a, a drastically different David that for whatever reason is hard hearted and not really like the David that we've come to know up to this point. Think all the way back to the time when he's an anointed as king. This is a, a, a drastically different David. And so the core of the whole scheme that, that David does um, is, is actually quite devious. Once he finds out Bathsheba is, is uh, pregnant, his desire then is to take her husband who is on the battlefield and get him to spend the night with his wife, Bathsheba. So let's take a look at uh, 11, 6 to 13. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, was doing and how people were doing and how the war was going. He's making small talk, okay? And then David said to Uriah, uh, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab, and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. 
Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate and in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And the evening and in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. It seems that Uriah just does not want to play by the rules. And so <clears throat> David's only scheme is to get him to come back and to go lie with Bathsheba so that David's tracks can be covered. And if you know anything about sin, particularly secret sin, you know that in the midst of secret sin, your desire is to cover your tracks in the best way possible. And it's constantly a game of covering your tracks. Well, David is engaged in really, for, the, for practically the first time in the text, I'm not saying David hasn't sinned up until this point, but really for the first time in this text, we see a grievous sin that David has committed. And rather than owning it initially, his first instinct is to cover it. And so he brings Uriah home from war and he starts making small talk. I mean, you can just smell the preposterous nature of this sort of scheme that he's doing where he's standing in his house and he's got Uriah there and he's, you know, so tell me how things are going and how, how are things on the battle? How are the men doing? How's the war, war going? It's like, this is really fishy. What have you brought me here for? Uriah is a fighter and he's ready to go fight. And in fact, this whole thing is, is really a kind of reeks of irony. Bathsheba is purifying herself in accordance with the ceremonial law and yet then commits this act of adultery with the king, which is transgressing the, the moral law of God. So there's there's adherence to this ceremonial law and yet not adherence to the moral law. There's a lot of this, you know, just irony going on within the text. And so David is, is trying to cover his tracks. And so to cover his tracks, um, the only way it becomes possible, Uriah just will not play by the game. He will not go down and sleep with his wife so that David can just kind of wash his hands of the whole deal and deny all knowledge. Instead, David does the only thing that he can think to do. In fact, it's a heinous thing. And when we read it, when we read about it, we can't help but think, boy, that's awful. David is about to make Uriah carry his own death notice with the seal of the king back to Joab. In fact, let's read about it in 14 to 25. Um, in the morning, David wrote, a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieged, the city he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and that the, the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the, king or ang if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not 
know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? And did not a woman cast an upper millstone from the wall so that he died there at Thebes? Why did you uh, why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had, had, uh, had sent to tell him. Okay, now notice something first in the text before we go any further. Notice that Joab has lost more men than he was really hoping to lose. And it's very obvious in the text that he knows, he's been with David for a long time, okay? He knows that David does not like to lose men in battle. And so he tells, he knows that he's been instructed to put Uriah in the worst possible situation so that Uriah will die. And he loses some men in the process. And so he goes, he sends his messenger, go and tell David all of this. And if he gets really mad about all the men that we lost, then that's when you need to tell him, well, Uriah the Hittite is dead, just like you asked. Um, Okay, now think about that for just a second. Then the messengers go back and they tell David all of this. Then the archers, uh, they they tell him, uh, the men gained advantage over us, is verse 23. The men gained advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back uh, to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now, pay attention how David responds. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Joab knows David, knows that he won't be happy, about people leaving. But David is so eat up with his own secret sin that his morals from before about losing men in battle kind of get swept under the rug. The biggest concern on his mind is how do I cover my tracks? And that's what sin does. We can see it play out in the story. And notice that chapter 9 and chapter 10 are really pretty quick. Uh, chapter 8 is really pretty quick, too. In describing the battle, only the most essential components of the battle are told to us. But when we get to David's character, let's pause for a second. Let's take our time through this story, and let's look at all of the things that David did and all the compromises he made because sin, which it seems as though in the Bible's whole narrative, That is the theme. That's why it doesn't behoove us to merely read this as a history book. That's important. Knowing the details, those are important. But that's not the only thing that's important in reading this narrative. It's understanding that the author is trying to communicate to us the dangers of sin and what it actually does to the human human that's engaging in it. David, we've seen be this, you know, really stand-up guy, so to speak. And yet when it came to his own sin, uh, he would do anything to cover it. Now, let me ask, are we really that far from David? Are you and I really that far from David? We look at what David does and we go, man, that's heinous. But do you not think that if you committed a grievous sin that it would just crush you 
maybe ruin your career, maybe ruin your marriage for people around you to know about? Do you not think that you too might do some really wicked things in order to cover it? Of course you would. We're not far from David. David's not, you know, any, anything out of the ordinary. David's a, a man, a sinful man. And as it turns out, incapable of stewarding the kingdom of God to the fullest. So the dastardly command was carried out. Uriah the Hittite is dead uh, at David's command. He carried his own death warrant um, to, to Joab and it was accomplished. And so with the blood on his hands, David took the widow to be his wife. Um, so we see from all of this, a couple of things. First, the kingdom of God is not even safe in David's hands. It, it was maybe we hoped at the very beginning, hey, David got some real promise here of setting a precedence for the kingdom of God to grow and, um, you know, to, to flourish. And uh, it never did come to fruition. And it turns out that even David will commit the most heinous sinful acts. And this is going to be the end. It's going to lead to effectively the the downfall of of David's kingdom. It's going to take 20 years probably to get there, but it's essentially the the start of a a slippery slope as it were. Um, And it's not that God doesn't forgive him. And it's not that David doesn't repent. We know he does. Um, But sin has consequences. And it, it turns out David's going to reap some of those. Um, the king, the kingdom is going to reap some of those. Solomon is going to make his own, uh, choices as well. And is going to reap a lot of those consequences as well. And, 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 uh, the kingdom of God under David is just not going to reach what we really hoped perhaps that it would and, and rule with justice and righteousness. Um, until Jesus publicly enforces the regime, the, the just regime at his second coming, uh, it will not be unusual for God's people to suffer even within the kingdom of God. Um, we know that we have, you know, with the gospel been entrusted with the message of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the spreading of the kingdom of God, that um, God's enemies by hearing and believing in the gospel become those that pay tribute to him in worship. Um, and so the, the kingdom of God is still spread through us uh, as its emissaries by the proclamation of the gospel. But even inside the church, it, we find that the, it's, it's imperfect. And while we are certainly supposed to um, steward the kingdom of God as pastors, as shepherds, as members of the church body, call each other out on sin, lead each other to repentance, and yes, even cast out people that pretend to be of the body of Christ, but, uh, but act in such a sinful and unrepentant way that they prove not to be a part of the body of Christ. Paul uses Old Testament terminology when he talks about church discipline. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Um, that's, that's kingdom of God talk. And he, he's basically saying, kick those, kick those people out. We're responsible for stewarding the kingdom of God. It turns out we are also fallen and not capable of perfectly uh, installing the kingdom of God. It, it isn't. It won't be until Jesus 
establishes once and for all the consummation of the kingdom, that it comes in perfection uh, when he sits on the throne uh, in a in a tangible way on, on earth, as it were, um, before us. Um, but here also another thing that we see is, is that like Adam, David also sins and um, he's given these great privileges. He's given this new creation, uh, the Davidic covenant. We talked about how, how many connections there are to new creation language and Garden of Eden language there are in the Davidic covenant and will be in the temple. Uh, but like Adam, David sins in relation to a woman, um, this time not just heeding, not heeding her advice, but actually taking her as a possession that wasn't his. Um, and as with Adam, the, the sin was David's, not the woman's. Da- uh, Adam, the, the race of Adam fell when Adam took the bite, not when Eve took the bite. Um, the kingdom of, of, uh, of God essentially under David's rule begins to slide when David uh, transgresses and, and kills and all of this. Um, so I hope everybody got those. Adam, a woman, David's woman's. <laughs> so as far as blanks go, but I think there's some pretty interesting parallels with Genesis three. Um, if you look at the, the two texts here that are in question, second uh, Samuel 11, two and four and Genesis three, six, uh, it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was, that word is good. It says beautiful. It can, it can also mean good. Tov is the word. So it just is sort of a general word, but he, he uh, saw that she was good. Uh, and so David, in verse four, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. And so what do we see in Genesis 3, 6? So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate. So see, good, and take are these sort of uh, patterns that would kind of draw our attention back to familiar stories we've heard before where one sins against God in a tremendous way and ends up breaking uh, a lot of God's... uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of good, perhaps good intentions initially. So um, we see sort of this uh, second fall, as it were, of the kingdom of God. And, and it, we're, it's not going to get a whole lot better from here on out. Um, so we may see some wins and some losses. We're going to see a temple be built in, in you know, 20 years or so, but, uh, or 30 years or so. But, you know, it, it's not going to get a whole lot better from here on out. So um, questions, comments? David, Michael, um, elaborate a little bit more that it, that what you said intrigued me a little bit about uh, it wasn't when it wasn't when Eve ate, ate of the apple. It was when Adam ate of the apple that caused. Yeah, um, there, there's a um, headship of uh, of man is as far back as creation. Paul makes this argument um, in several places in the New Testament. Um, uh, I think this is really fundamental to us understanding salvation, actually, uh, is understanding that the headship of the man, that Adam was entrusted with the human race, and Eve was appointed as as his helpmeet, and the two were working in unison. 
And uh, Adam, so, so when Adam fell, if he's sort of the head of the human race, when he falls, everyone else falls with him. Um, so you're not uh, a sinner because you committed a sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You're fallen with Adam. Uh, everyone, so this is the reason that everyone in the human race is guilty um, when they're born. You, you stand guilty already. Uh, the whole human race is there condemned with Adam. Why is that? Well, because in taking a bite, it seems as in taking a, a bite of the fruit, he gains the knowledge of good and evil, which is not something that God created him with. God did not create him to have that. Part of his dominion over the world was not to have that. Well, once he took of it, um, he passed it on to all of his progeny. So you and I are have the knowledge of good and evil um, th- that we were not uh, created to have. And we have that because our father, Adam, failed. Well, what Jesus is describing in salvation is he, he tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't, this boggles his mind. He doesn't understand that. But really, it's a headship issue. It's a discussion of headship. What God did in giving Christ virgin born to the human race is that he established a new head over creation. So now there's two possible heads. There's the headship of Adam, and then there's the headship of Jesus. Well, the headship of Adam is given to you by virtue of the fact that you're born. You are born with flesh and blood, and therefore you are born under Adam's headship. But you can also be born again by faith under the headship of Christ. And that headship has the gift of the Holy Spirit, comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, so Jesus is making this argument in, in uh, John chapter 3 and several other places throughout the New Testament. And so um, it, it's a question of headship. So when Adam takes a bite of the fruit, the whole human race falls. And it's not until he does, as the as the human race's head until he takes the bite. That's when the human race falls. So then the natural question you probably want to ask is, what would have happened if Adam had said no, but Eve had said yes? And that is a really good question that I don't know the answer to. Other questions? That's a good one. The one thing that, that amazes me is, Damascus to Jerusalem is like 6,000 and something miles apart, <laughs> right? I it's mean, a long, a long I, I, I couldn't tell you what, how long for sure, but yeah. So, I mean, they've got a whole lot of time to think about what they're going to do. And if Hunan thought, uh-oh, I mean, he stirred, I mean, he'd been given lots of time to think about it, to gather up all these men. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no telling how long the men that had their beard shaved were held captive, sent back. David goes to meet them, figures out what he's going to do, gets his people together at Jerusalem. Obviously, that's enough for Hunan to go, oh, no, what have I done? This is a travesty. But yeah, he doesn't make reparations for it. He just keeps going, right? Let's <laughs> gather them for battle. So I'm telling you, First and Second Samuel 
and first and second Kings for that matter should be made into a movie and just, you don't have to really give any more details, just what's in the text. And it would be, it would be plenty. Well, it'd be the longest wait for that matter. <laughs> together. Perhaps, perhaps you wouldn't tell it in real time, like 24. <laughs> they, they have been building themselves up for months. They are ready to fight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Any other questions you've got? I think that is our time for the evening. So I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to let us go here. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to get together, to listen to your word, to hear it, to think about it, to think about it in depth, to think about the story that's before us and to read it as a warning. And I pray that it would be a warning to all of us, myself included, that uh, we would never cease to watch our path, um, to be concerned about the tempters that come to our uh, ears and eyes. Um, whether it be people that give us counsel, that is bad counsel. Lord, give us wisdom to sniff out bad counsel. Um, or whether it's tempters that would come to appeal to our eyes, give us wisdom to turn away and to think better about those situations, to think more in line with the spirit that you have given to us. Um, the spirit of your kingdom that you have put in us, um, your Holy Spirit that is guiding us. I pray that that would govern our thoughts, our affections, our desires, and not what we see with our eyes. Um, we see that that has gotten so many people in trouble over the years, gotten us ourselves in trouble uh, over our lives. And so we pray for wisdom to steer clear of those things. May these things be a warning to us to always watch our path. And I pray that you would help to remind us of that on a daily basis. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.